welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. Hi, I'm Oliver Thompson. So I hope you enjoyed the previous two episodes of the Qualitative Research series. The first one introducing Qualitative Research with Perry Tutterman, and the last one on Grounded Theory with Professors Jane Mills and Melanie Burks. I really enjoyed the conversations and I look forward to continuing through the series. And thanks again to all of you who have supported the show via Patreon. If you'd like to make a contribution, you can visit patreon.com forward slash the Words Matter podcast. If not, I'm just pleased you're listening to the show and taking something of value from it. So we continue our journey in and across qualitative research. And in today's episode, I'm speaking about ethnography with sociologist Dr. Fiona Webster. Fiona is an associate professor at Western University, London, Ontario, Canada. And her research interest lies in the sociology of chronic pain and other chronic health conditions, with a particular focus on using critical and institutional ethnographic approaches. And Fiona has published extensively using ethnography, including a powerful study on the chronic pain management in primary care, titled The Social Organisation of Physicians' Work in the Mists of the Opioid Crisis. And that was published in the journal PLOS One. She's also written a book titled The Social Organisation of Best Practice and Institutional Ethnography of Physicians' Work. I've linked some of Fiona's papers, her book, and some of the other texts that we discuss in the show notes. So in this episode, we talk about what ethnography is, its problematic history, and its place as ground zero for quality research. We talk about ethnography's ability to capture complex, naturally occurring social interactions in contexts that are not subject to experimental control. We talk about the different epistemological postures within ethnography and we touch on Hammersley's famous critique titled What's Wrong with Ethnography? which articulates the methodological and ontological confusion which he perceived within ethnography, namely naive realism and relativism. I would suggest that you also read Grant Banfield's rebuttal, What's Really Wrong with Ethnography, where he proposes subtle realism as a solution to the confusion. And I've linked these in the show notes. We talk about the way in which ethnographic research is carried out, from data collection, such as participant observation, field notes, and interviews, and some of the ethical issues of prolonged immersion in the field, and who can be researched in the research field. We talk about the Hawthorne effect, that is, people's change in behaviour when they know they're being observed, and how this relates, or doesn't relate, to ethnographic observation. We talk about data analysis and researcher reflexivity within an ethnographic study. Finally, for those wanting to learn more about ethnography, Fiona suggests some classic and influential ethnographies including the books Forgive and Remember, Managing Medical Failure, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down, Boys in White, and finally, 
the autoethnography, leaving the boys, a story of motherhood and career, feminism and romance. And I've linked these texts in the show notes. So this was just a wonderful conversation with Fiona. She describes the theory and practice of ethnography perfectly and her powerful insights into institutional ethnography and the rich data and findings that ethnography generates just really made me want to do some ethnography. So watch this space. So I bring you Dr. Fiona Webster. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So this is, again, a bit like my conversation, which I've just recorded with Anna Riala about critical theory. It's quite an impromptu episode. So we organize this again within the space of about eight minutes on Twitter. Yes. Where you quite rightly said, are you doing an episode on ethnography? And I said, I don't know any ethnographers. Do you fancy it? And you said yes. And here we are. Here we are. <laughs> and it's quite right because... To me, to my mind, ethnography is the kind of granddaddy or grandmummy of qualitative research, that it was one of the first systematic approaches by which people drew kind of qualitative data from social interactions and observations. So it completely deserves its own episode. So thank you for reminding me. You're welcome. And, and you're right. It is, in fact, the first qualitative methodology grounded in anthropology. So it's, you know, centuries old. So before we go into that, perhaps you could say a little bit about yourself, your academic and research background. Yes. So uh, I'm a sociologist by training and I've spent most of my career embedded in uh, medical settings. So I've worked as a scientist in hospitals. Uh, I've worked from starting in public health. Uh, I moved into um, working with a neurology team, orthopedic surgery, the sort of MSK, musculoskeletal field more generally uh, into primary care. And, and now I'm situated within nursing. So I've always been embedded um, and I've moved out of the clinical settings and into the university setting. So that in itself is an interesting transition for an ethnographer. And where's your current academic post? So it's at Western University in London, Ontario, Canada. Okay. Yeah, in the, um, the School of Nursing there. So I think a good way to start, or at least it worked well in my somewhat grapple with critical theory when I asked Anna, if you were going to explain ethnography to someone that really had no sense about what it was as a methodology in a restaurant, in a pub, in a bar, what would be the simple explanation to describe or explain what ethnography is? That's a great question. Uh, I would say that ethnography uh, is a research approach, a social science research approach, whereby we go and immerse ourselves in settings uh, where people are, and we try to understand the, the social meaning and the practices of that setting from the standpoint of the people who are there. So it's, it's obviously merges interviews and different types of interviews uh, with observations, and also looking at what are called artifacts, and that are the things that people use, the things that people leave behind as they go about their lives, their work. And so as you alluded to in the beginning, it comes from anthropology where there's this study of people or, or cultures. What's the, the lineage there? 
Uh, so it's actually a very problematic one. Uh, originally, the sort of the whole uh, approach of ethnography, you know, it was really essentially Christian missionaries going out to other cultures. Um, so the, you know, the othering began there. And, and the idea was to prove the superiority of Western values and Western religion. So these were very unreflexive types of accounts that had a particular political purpose. And we've, of course, moved a very long way away from uh, those beginnings as we move into anthropology and through anthropology to sociology through the Chicago school in the 60s. Because hmm. those original, uh, were they Christian missionaries, do you say? Yes, absolutely. Who are going to sort of non-Western uh, settings and, and keeping what we would now call and what gave rise to field notes. So field note accounts. But of course, there's there are field notes uh, accounts really you know, they were so, so influenced by their own belief systems uh, that they were barely looking at uh, what was really going on in the culture from the standpoint of the people within it. They were imposing their own values. So it's, you know, this idea of naively going and seeing uh, has been in disrepute for a long time in the field. So we know you can't do that. You can't go and see what's going on because we see through the lens of what we believe. We see through the lens of our own theoretical assumptions about the world. Yeah, and we can maybe talk about the role of theory and ethnography and what theories can frame that ethnographic perspective. Hmm. So I think we're just getting back to my question about the missionaries. I'm not going to spend too much time on the missionaries, no. but <laughs> but it, it would seem to me, yeah, just as you quite rightly said, that they possibly weren't so interested in kind of immersing themselves in the other culture and you're trying to kind of live, if you like, in that particular way or in that particular social context, but rather being a bit, a bit more distant and looking to impose their views or their values on the on the pseudo-research field or the culture that which they were working with. Yeah, and, and many branches of science were doing that. Certainly, um, you know, this is sort of the era where we have also um, uh, social Darwinism, uh, that the, the idea that there's an you know an evolution uh, to you know so-called civilizations mm. and and as always with Western civilization being seen as being the top of that hierarchy. Um, so again, these are these are sort of long time ago uh, uh, put aside, and we realize the profound error of of conducting any type of research through that lens. And. You describe it as a methodology, ethnography. It's, a, it's clearly a methodology rather than a collection of methods or something more abstract like a, a theory, but it's a philosophy about doing research, right? No, absolutely. And methodology and methods, as as you know, are, are distinctly uh, separate things. So um, I think in general, the methods are similar uh, across the different qualitative methodologies, but the way we take them up, our analytic focus, the epistemology and the ontology underlying the research approach uh, approaches or traditions are per, can be profoundly different. So maybe we can go into that. What what is it? So uh, if we if we sit, try and situate ethnography in the context of other qualitative approaches, which have similar methods of data collection and analysis, what is the perspective that ethnography gives the researcher what is it that you're looking at so if you're in your work for example observing clinicians or physicians in uh, hospital departments 
you might have a grounded theorist or a phenomenologist both doing, you know, observing the same group. What is it that ethnography gives you that draws your attention? What are you sensitized to? So ethnography is really interested in culture. It's interested in uh, what's happening at the group level. Phenomenology, it's interesting you mentioned that, would be in some ways if there was a continuum on the opposite end of that continuum. It's uh, interested in the lived experience. It's interested in the essence of experience. It's very much uh, more focused on individuals. So it's never, so I never do phenomenological work. I mean, although there are concepts from phenomenological work uh, that have been I think, influential across all the qualitative methodologies. So it's really interesting, that social interaction. So it's, it's, and it's, it's naturalistic to its core in so much as you're not trying to control anything. Is that right? So I guess I'm thinking about qualitative research that I've done, even an interview, semi-structured or otherwise, it's still arranging someone to be in a room at a certain time and you've got to a list of questions where ethnography, some of the methods of data collection are involved just observing uh, kind of seeing what plays out or am I going to miss? No, no, you're right. But we, we think about it more in terms of levels of participation. So you're immersed in a participatory way in the setting um, and there's degrees of the degree to which you are uh, a participant versus an observer. I mean, you know, there, there's no such thing as a purely naturalistic inquiry because, yes, we when we do interviews, we're co-constructing data with our participants. You know, what we ask uh, has an influence on how people respond. And similarly, in ethnographic research, you know, what it is we choose to be observing and how we go about that and how we conduct the analysis um, will inform what type of interpretation we end up with. So, so there, is no, there is no sort of purely naturalistic form of inquiry, I would argue. But second to that, and relatedly, one of the, uh, the critiques I've heard the most often of ethnographic observation is um, this question around what's called the Hawthorne effect. Um, and this is the idea that people behave differently when they're being observed. But again, you're observing and participating. So for instance, when we were doing observations in an emergency department, we had um, a PhD student go in. She wore a white coat. She was meant to blend in without deceiving people, meant to, to blend in as unobtrusively as possible in the setting. And she was there for prolonged times during the day, on the weekends, at night. And, you know, in a busy environment like the emergency uh, department, people are not going to be paying that much attention. There's researchers going in and out for other types of studies. Um, no one's really changing what they do. Uh, so it, it's not, uh, I don't think it has that kind of effect. The Hawthorne effect comes from a study that was done in Hawthorne um, in the States in, I think, around the 1920s in a, um, a factory where they were trying to get factory workers to speed up how quickly they worked by, and they were uh, doing observations around, you know, if, um, if a boss person, if a person in authority stood closer to them, would they work faster? So how that ended up being so uh, applied to ethnographic research, I can't tell you, but I, I find it uh, an annoying criticism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it's all of qualitative research. Yes. And the minute you, if, if you take it to be a, an issue, Qualitative research, by and large, is social interactions. They involve people 
talking or observing or participating with other people, the minute you say, the moment you participate, you're going to change that interaction, well, then there's no point in interacting. So I think it's part of the, the process and you can argue it, or maybe you can say, well, you've already said some of the strategies to kind of mitigate that potential change in behavior, wearing a, a white coat, but some of it is just prolonged immersion and getting participants used to that environment and, and essentially they forget that they're being observed or interacted with from a researcher. Yeah, exactly. Although I do want to say in terms of ethics, for me, uh, uh, obtaining consent is an ongoing process. So just for any listeners who might be worried about that, um, the, the, the point of sort of blending into your environment uh, is to be unobtrusive. It is not to deceive people. People know mm. what you're doing there. They understand you're a researcher and not really one of them. Um, so I think that's important to note, but, but, you know, the critiques of the Hawthorne effect and this, this idea that the researcher's presence contaminates the research really, yeah. really arises from objectivism in science and, and the belief that we can know things absolutely. So no qualitative researcher is looking for objective or absolute truth. We're looking to understand the meanings that people assign to their experiences. So mm. that's, that's the point of it. Uh, we spoke a little bit offline about the debate which happened don't know, 20 odd years ago with Hammersley and his argument or his critique of ethnography or what's wrong with ethnography and the responses that, which came from that. But we haven't got to go into his 24 page critique or his book, whatever it is. But I suppose one of the key things was about how reality is viewed by ethnographers, whether there's a, whether there is a objective, real, kind of independent reality or there's this you know, reality is constructed or co-constructed. And is it the case that through the course of time, ethnographers have kind of slid across that continuum or are there different positions within ethnography? So there's definitely different theoretical paradigms under underpinning different uh, ethnographic approaches. But I think we've really moved away from realism. And, um, you know, Hammersley, uh, strikingly in his 24-page document is he talks about validity he comes back again and again and and validity is uh, a criterion of quality for quantitative or post-positivist research but not for the social science qualitative research approaches so um, there's that mismatch i think between the aim of qualitative researches and and where hammersley's going there in in terms of evaluating its quality but i think for the most part we've moved from you know, a notion of realism to critical realism, to more critical approaches. We've moved into the post-structural era, of course, uh, where we understand that words don't just describe, they um, they create, uh, all those types of things. So uh, I, I think we, most of us, or many of us working now, are not working in a post-positivist uh, type of tradition. So maybe, I suppose, to begin to, to get a sense of the way in which ethnographic research can be conducted is if you perhaps share some of your own experiences that you've alluded to how you, how you've used ethnography in A&E or ER departments if you're on the other side of the Atlantic but emergency departments just tell us a bit more about that the, the sorts of research questions that were generated with an ethnographic um, mind if you like or, or framework and the sorts of approaches to collecting data and the subsequent analysis and 
and maybe even touched on some of the findings? So the approach that I use most often uh, in my own research is uh, known as institutional ethnography. Um, it's a critical ethnographic approach. It's interesting. Dorothy Smith, uh, who developed institutional ethnography, is a Canadian, a leading Canadian sociologist, and she describes this as an approach to inquiry as opposed to a methodology, because she wanted to sidestep this sort of obsession, if you will, with you know methods. Um, so she describes it as an approach to inquiry, and it's a way of understanding and seeing how social relations or the what the role of the institution is in uh, people's everyday experience. So it, it we always start not in a, an abstract problem, but in a, something that is a problem for people in a particular setting. And that leads nicely into me being able to share that uh, all of the research problems that I've studied actually came from clinicians, uh, patients, uh, and their families. So I don't sort of come up with the ideas on my own from reading the literature. I don't come up with abstract problems. I, I've been immersed in settings and able to talk to people and find out what were problems for them. So the emergency department problem was brought to us by an internal medicine physician who was seeing a lot of conflict happening between emergency room uh, residents and internal medicine residents. At a particular historical moment when Ontario hospitals probably it was a, a national phenomenon. We're really trying to reduce emergency department visits by patients, right? So that's probably happening and was probably happening in the UK as well. So we went in to conduct an institutional ethnography. I had, a, again, this PhD student uh, who shadowed emergency department residents for half the time, and she shadowed internal uh, medicine residents for half the time. And as we were listening, we became aware that they kept all of them using this term failure to cope to describe a, a certain type of elderly, frail patient who they felt didn't really didn't really need medical help. So uh, we started unpacking that term and the clinicians on our team were saying to us, oh, like, why are you paying attention to that term? Um, so it's a, a good example of why having multidisciplinary teams allows us to challenge each other's assumptions. So they're so used to this term, they didn't think it was analytically interesting. But what we did when we traced the term is we were able to analyze how that term is used in a way to uh, distract attention away from institutional problems in which both sets of physicians were being asked to speed up, speed up, speed up, speed up. Uh, so much that they couldn't actually do uh, their work well. Uh, and so as they were being sped up, they started to focus more on these failure to cope patients as being the source of their problems. So it was really system inefficiencies and system priorities that were sort of discursively presenting themselves in this certain type of way. So maybe just give us a sense of what that shadowing looks like. So you've got a PhD student or a research yeah. student they're in a white coat. Sorry. Yeah. And I was going to say she was a medical anthropologist, very, okay. very talented ethnographer in her own right. And so she's in this kind of crazy ER, A&E department or hospital department, but acute care, emergency department, I'll call it. And so she's kind of standing in the corner with a clipboard or she's kind of moving around and what's her, what, how did, yeah, what's her, what's that kind of dynamism like? Is she trying not to be seen? Is she quite upfront and gets in the mix and gets close to patients? 
is she talking to the clinicians and the people within that field? So absolutely. So she isn't sort of mutely walking around, <laughs> just staring at people because that would be very, I think, odd, <laughs> disturbing. Uh, but, you know, a lot of medical trainees are trained this way. So she's so shadowing um, is a common strategy in ethnography. So she's just sort of hanging out uh, with a particular um, resident um, who, as they're moving along, is naturally sharing information with her about what, what they are doing. But, you know, she doesn't, you know, if, if they're in the, the middle of an interaction with a patient, she doesn't start asking a ton of questions. <laughs> um, just like we don't take our field notes in front of people, we wait uh, for a quiet moment to go and write down our, our thoughts uh, about what we've just observed. So unobtrusively, she's shadowing, um, but in off moments, I mean, you know, residents have coffee breaks, she would go with the resident, and then she might ask her questions about, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about what was going on there? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, it seemed to me that there was a bit of tension there. Can you tell me about that? Uh, So looking for confirmation, those are confirmatory types of questions, that sort of thing. So really rich, like it's, it's, I mean, I mean, it's neither... It's neither just interviews or, or neither just observation or participant observation, but it's this, like you said, hanging out. Yeah. Hanging out with the people that you want to understand or create some sort of explanation of those interactions. Yes. And over an extended period mm. of time. So one of the issues that comes up that ethnographers like to talk about is the nature of those relationships, you know, things like the ethics around exiting settings. So, you know, people get used to you being there if you've been there for several months and then you're leaving and sort of how do we handle those things in a, in an ethical way? How do we, Interesting. yeah. Because yeah. if you're having a coffee every second day and reflecting on what went on during that kind of clinical moment, you can just create friendships in a way and personal connections. Absolutely. Dorothy Smith in Institutional Ethnography uh, writes about the risk of um, institutional capture. And that is when you're immersed for long enough, you you start seeing the, the culture, if you will, f- um, so much through the eyes of the people already in it that you sort of lose touch with your own sense of it. And it's your own sense of it that allows you to question the assumptions that are being made by people within the setting, such as that failure to cope example. What might follow on nicely is is to touch on insider and outsider research or the emic etic position where you're in, by spending time and immersing yourself in in that culture, you to some extent become an insider of the 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 kind of knowledge and values and and practices of that culture, but you're also an outsider because you really have no idea about what's going on in people's minds or worlds or realities exactly. So, and we're all, yes, so we're all insider, outsider to some degree, and you need to reflexively sort of understand what your role is in any particular setting. I always give the example of uh, if I was a nurse and I was tra- I was studying nursing behavior in a particular clinical unit, I, I, that is very participatory. Um, that's like full participation. Um, not only am I studying the setting, I'm literally part of it. Uh, by training and role. Uh, when I study things, uh, I'm obviously um, often more on the outside than I am on the inside because I'm studying clinical issues as a non-clinician. And neither one is better or worse than the other. All of it comes down to our ability to be aware of 
our positionality uh, within our research studies and to be able to think through what impact that has on, on what we're seeing and how we're analyzing and interpreting data. Yeah, as you said, as an insider, it affords you, so me as a clinician doing research into my clinical profession, it's a kind of double-edged sword that I'm both sensitized to the norms and values and the kind of language which takes place in my my culture, if you like, which might be a benefit because I might be a little bit attuned and familiar with the field. But on the other side, as you were saying in your example previously, that there'll just be assumed meanings of things. And I just, that, that are just second nature to me. And I'm not necessarily taking a moment to really critically think about what these behaviors or, or um, practices mean than outside it would. Exactly. And Yes, and that brings me to one of the great benefits of ethnography and ethnographic observation is that, um, you know, if you asked me what I did in the classroom, I only have access to those things I'm aware of doing in the classroom. But if you observed me in the classroom teaching, you would notice different things about what I'm doing that it doesn't even occur to me just to verbalize because I'm not really doing them consciously. Um, so yeah, with ethnography, we get to see, we get to hear not just how people describe what we do, we get to see that in motion. Um, so we get to see the social in motion. And I think that's what gives it its power. And there's a few questions I want to ask. One is about the sorts of, or the nature of the data that you're mm. working with, whether it's just field notes, whether the interviews at the coffee break are transcribed. What is the, once you've done this data collection, and I'm using kind of air quotes here, because that's the kind of pretty standard terminology in research. What kind of data, what does the data look like? So the data is field notes and field notes are extensive. Um, so that's quite a lot of data there because you're trying to record your evolving understanding of what you're seeing. You're trying to be when you're working with teams as precise as you can be uh, as to what you're seeing. So when I'm supervising people uh, doing observations, they'll frequently give me field notes that say things like a senior physician walked into the room and I have to say in the margins, OK, you're, how, do, how did you know? that it was a senior physician, you need to tell me that. And then they go back and rewrite it and say, an older man walked in the room and the others seemed to listen to him with marked respect. And that's good because then I know the fact that he is senior could just be their assumption that allows me to get behind how they're making the assumptions that they do. So it's quite an art to learn how to yeah, write. Yeah, good field notes. You're doing, you're having these ad hoc conversations, but then you're also conducting formal interviews. And then this issue of artifacts. So um, institutional ethnography, the approach I use relies a lot on text. It's sort of the approach itself is founded in the the belief that we're a text mediated society, meaning that ruling relations occur through text. It's so, you know, the, the dean or the president of the university doesn't come and tell me how it is I should behave as a professor, but uh, I'm sort of told what it is I should be doing through all the various policies. So we're so we're looking around at text as well, and a text can be very sort of broadly defined. And so, are you triangulating those, the observations or the rather no rather the reflections about the observations or the interactions? plus the interviews, you, you know, you said there may be some kind of more formal interviews. Are you looking to triangulate this stuff and converge on? So no, 
No, no. no. So uh, I, I specifically avoid the word triangulation because, again, it implies that there is a more absolute or better version of truth. And if we just, you know, put all our little pieces of data together, we're going to find it. So, no, there is no absolute truth. But we are we are looking at all of these things in order to develop our analysis. And in terms of group work or is do people work as sole ethnographers or is it work better if there's a few of you that so one of the first things the one of the biggest differences in disciplinary um, training between being an anth- coming out of anthropology or sociology and going into health services research is that in health services research everyone does everything in teams ethnography um, if you're still in your okay. traditional departmental role is a solo activity for the most part I work with teams and I've I've been extraordinarily lucky with the uh, the clinical teams I've had a chance to work with. I really couldn't do the work that I do uh, without being on teams because, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll be really sort of going down the wrong rabbit hole, so to speak, because I notice something that the clinical teams are able to sort of put context and meaning around. And they, you know, it's it's been an interesting dialectic uh, between myself and the clinicians on the team. And I, I've now, for my chronic pain work, been working with the same clinical team, the same research team um, for a very long time. And it's comprised of family medicine doctors, um, bioethicists, pain psychologists, uh, nurses. So I have a really amazing, you know, representation of different clinical groups. And that allows the work, I think, to be that much yeah. stronger. And is it, I guess, there's always a risk that you then become, that familiarity with the group and the field and that setting kind of desensitizes you that you become not, I guess you've got to maintain that critical reflexivity and step out or step away to get some sort of perspective. You know, being in a group is a great way to practice reflexivity because we can challenge each other's assumptions and you need trust to Mm. practice reflexivity in a group setting. You have to know that you can actually say what it is you're thinking and assuming about people and their behavior and their meanings without risk sort of being taken to task for that or criticized. Uh, So, you know, having, having a longstanding team helps with having created that trust uh, but, but there is no group think. We, we all sort of have very different perspectives on data and on what's going on. So what might be some of the strategies that ethnographers go through to, to be reflexive or to... So I think the question is like obviously uh, around how important reflexivity is to ethnography, because otherwise all we're doing (laughs) is going and recording our own existing pre-existing beliefs about the way things work. So I think uh, one of the strategies is to uh, constantly be searching for alternate explanations to what we're seeing, you know, going back between sort of what you're seeing and reading the literature and talking to others on the team about what is going on here uh, is the question that you're you're asking a lot and really thinking a lot about your own positionality and why it is you might be seeing the things you believe you're seeing. And so with that, so part of the reflexive process is to think about the literature and to what extent the literature is brought into the study and begins to shape what we're seeing. And in grounded theory, there's, you know, 
there's decades old arm wrestling going on about the role of the literature yes. in data analysis and, and the development of a grounded theory in ethnography. Is there a similar debate that the literature should be kept till the end, the write-up, or be used in the beginning to sensitize yourself or being brought in? What's the current discussion? Yeah, so I I, I, th- I think that grounded theory argument that you can come in without literature is silly. Uh, like, so uh, then you'd really be uh, an unknowing researcher, which which really makes no sense. So, um, uh, so I think we want to be aware of sort of the theoretical assumptions we bring into any study, and uh, and so reading and scholarship can only aid, I think, in the in the quality of a study. I don't see how being scholarly in your approach can detract, because again, there isn't. It's not like you're going and seeing. There is there is no um, there's nothing going on that that you can report that exists outside of your interpretation of it. So you you know it's through reading theory and reading literature that we become aware of what we believe and how we're seeing things. So that that would be my own take on it. Renee Fox, who was uh, an ethnographer and anthropologist, actually has a great quote on theory. Do you want me to read it? Please, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it, because I, I, I think of this quote a lot. She says, aspiring to enter the field devoid of any preconceived ideas of what one may be looking for, expect to find, in order to fulfill a purist conception of scientific objectivity is neither warranted or realistic. If it were possible to go into the field as a tabula rasa with the aim of letting the field speak, it is likely one would exit the field mm. in the same state. <laughs> so I love that. Like you, you'd go in, mm. you'd learn nothing. <laughs> and yeah, and I think that the phrase that's used by, I think it's Kathy Shamaz, who's a constructivist grounded theory, mm. is something like yes. an open mind but not an empty head. So you you cannot help but go into the field laden with theory and experiences and kind of a priori knowledge and views, but you can have a sense of wonderment and openness to be surprised about things that you otherwise wouldn't have expected to to take place or to to kind of find out. I love that idea of the wonderment. Uh, I always say to sort to new students that I've I've actually never conducted a qualitative or ethnographic study where I didn't find things out that I had did not expect to find in any which way at all. You can't predict where you're going in an ethnographic mm. study, which has caused all kinds of headaches for researchers with REB boards who want to know exactly sort of what you're going to find. And you, you have to say, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. So, you know, something in relation to this broad topic, but I have no idea what specific shape that's going to take. Yeah. And so in terms of the, so for example, in your work, observing clinical interactions mm-hmm. in, in grounded theory, there's this notion of theoretical sampling where you would, where you'd start out the study thinking, well, I want to observe or collect data or interview clinicians, let's say, but then at some point in your analysis and your theory development, you begin to ask questions of your data, which suggests you might need to speak to people you had no idea, you know, vets or i don't know airline pilots or something else to give some theoretical perspective and to fill in aspects of the theory is there is there that change in sampling and maybe even sampling doesn't work with ethnography because it doesn't sound like you're sampling in the same way that you would if you're you know collecting data 
Yeah. And institutional ethnography, we actually talk about sampling and institutional process is really what we're trying to do. And and we proceed by sort of speaking to someone in a local setting. And then as we're trying to put together what is coordinating the experience that they're having, then you, you do start speaking to others. You do move from, let's say, nurses in an ICU to talking to a hospital administrator, uh, to talking to policymakers, and sort of you're moving up trying to trace what's happening in that local setting by looking toward the extra local. I think a lot of traditional ethnographies that are descriptive would just stay within a local setting. That's absolutely fine. But you can't predict unless you know for certain who's going to be in that local setting, who it is you might be speaking with. And so everyone, so I'm just trying to think, so you're in the A&E department, you've got your ethnographic researcher shadowing one of the clinicians there's stuff happening in one side of the the room, let's say, or setting between a patient and a clinician. And then someone else walks in, a family member or the cleaner, and that sparks off another interaction. Mm -hmm. Is it the case that everyone's fair game, that they're all part of this research study? Or is it the case that the cleaner didn't sign the consent form, but yet might bring something, you know, something might be generated from his or her interaction, but you can't notice it because they haven't consented we had is because i guess it's so it's potentially so uncontrolled how do you decide who's part of this research and who's not uh that's a great question so uh, i i'm I'm not gonna i'm gonna step away from answering that as an ethical uh issue specifically but uh i mean you do have an analytic focus uh we do develop observation guides to start and there's lots of different direction uh, in the literature around how to do that it's similar in some ways to a semi-structured interview guide but um it's giving guidance around what you're going to be looking for so the the first way you described of observing is what's called broad sweep so you're sort of looking at anything and everything that's going on um and from there trying to determine what might be analytically interesting but we went into, for instance, our emergency departments, we did have a focus. We wanted to look at the interaction between internal medicine uh, residents and emergency department residents. So that that was the primary focus. Uh, ethically, we weren't allowed to record anything about patients. So while we observed patient interaction, we, we kept no notes uh, because patients were not part of the study. So you didn't keep notes? No. But nonetheless, yeah, it's in there somewhere. Yes, but we weren't specifically interested in sure. the interaction between the physician and the patient for that study. So I, you know, there's no there's no hard and fast answer uh, to your question, but you know, you you sort of learn sort of what your analytic focus is, how that might guide you. Uh, but you know, when you're when you're immersed in a setting for a very long time, and like so, for my PhD, I was immersed for three years in a particular setting, you know, it's, that's a very long time. And so I interacted with everybody. uh, And I was also doing institutional ethnography. So I was purposefully trying to speak to as many people as possible who were involved in any way in my phenomenon of interest, uh, which was the organization of care for acute stroke. Okay. And I think some final topics, if it's okay to touch on, one was perhaps giving us a sense of the sorts of data analysis which takes place once the the data is generated, whether there's anything particularly distinctive of ethnographic qualitative data analysis. 
And the second thing, just to earmark, is something around the, the theoretical perspectives which can inform ethnographic research. You mentioned critical, critically based approaches or critically informed approaches. So the first thing is just about the analysis. So once you've generated this data, largely field notes, maybe some interviews, what do you do with it? Good question. So first of all, the way you phrase that is interesting. So we're the analysis, the interpretation starts at the very outset of the study, even even in determining a research question where we, we start to be interpretive. So uh, as you're observing your beginning analysis um, and the analysis there is to develop um, an evolving understanding of what's going on in a particular setting in relation to your research question. So it doesn't happen at the end once you've done all the observations that's happening as you go along. And that's one of the strengths, I think, of all qualitative research, right, is that we're, we're analyzing concurrently to data collection. People analyze their data in different ways. There is no one set way. Um, we're moving in ethnography most often uh, toward a description of something, a sort of theoretically rich and information-rich description to capture something that isn't commonly known about a particular setting or phenomenon. So in that way, you don't have to move to sort of like the Brown and Clark uh, thematic analysis of, you know, coding and developing themes. Some ethnographers will do that. Uh, I've done that at times. Also with institutional ethnography, uh, we have different um, analytic tools. We talk about identifying a problematic of a setting, which is different than the problem people in that setting describe that they're facing. We talk about looking for disjunctures between sort of the ideologies informing a setting and what's really happening. So to make that more clear, uh, again, in my PhD, looking at the organization of acute stroke care, I looked about I looked at evidence-based medicine and sort of what that implied at an ideological level. And then I looked at how that was actually practiced. And there was a huge disjunctures uh, between the theory and the practice there. Uh, so there, there, you know, it's, I can't go into sort of every analytic strategy, but there's a wide range that, okay. is, that is available to researchers. And that will partially depend on what their theoretical uh, assumptions are going into the work. Yeah. But it's interesting how you said that there's a real variation in the kind of systematicity in regards to the analysis that you can got, I would imagine people doing coding line by line, you know, development of broad categories, but then you've got a much more kind of fluid, evolving form of analysis where it's probably less structured. Would that be fair? That Well, uh, yeah, possibly less structured, but not less rigorous, right? Because, okay. right, because... Yeah, no, I wasn't suggesting that was, yeah. Yeah, because you're you're still thinking about your, your data, whether it's field notes or yeah. looking at artifacts or interviews. Um, you're, you're constantly thinking with a view to create an explanation, a description of it. And that involves some degree of categorization or, you know, calling things certain things or finding theories to help you uh, make sense of what you're finding. And then finally, if you're able to, it's, it's a weird time to put this at the end, but just maybe allude to the sorts of kind of flavors of ethnographic research in terms of critically based, are there particularly strong perspectives that people are currently taking in terms of the theoretical kind of frameworks which are driving forms of analysis or certain questions so i'm i don't know are there feminist forms of ethnography and kind of you know, critically based ones or you know one of the things you get asked about an, an approach like ethnography because it's largely traditionally descriptive is oh 
you know, how is this useful? What kind of impact um, does this have? And I think about Charles Charles Bosk's work, uh, Forgiven, Forgiven, Remember, uh, which was an ethnography of patient safety and medical errors. Uh, actually, it was a it was an ethnography of medical errors. It led to the patient safety movement, which was huge in North America. I don't know if it made it across the pond to the UK. Probably a uh, huge movement, um, and that was literally to I think arguably sparked from that ethnographic classic. I think we've learned a lot from ethnographies uh, in terms of critically being able to debunk the assumptions people are making uh, by saying, look, like here, here's what, what is actually happening on the ground. So as we record this today, the Grounded Theory episode is, is released for the series of qualitative podcasts. And I spoke to Jane Mills and Melanie Burks, who are Grounded Theorists based in Australia. And Jane mentioned Howard Becker's work on boys and white yeah boys and white it's it's um uh it's a classic around um medical education a sociological classic yeah i wasn't aware so i I googled it but she i think the the question i put to her was grounded theory arose at a time in the mid-60s where qualitative research was it don't take don't take offense was unstructured in so much as as you've described it there's a, a a more organic way of doing ethnographic qualitative research and then grounded theory came along and looked to kind of systematize this and make it rigid for the more positivist. Yeah, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not the same for the for the better. Yeah. But for some, that would have been an appeal, you know, people that wanted to satisfy the scientists and the positivists. But so yeah, it was just that that comment that it that it comes back to the the what we talked about at the beginning that ethnographies had a prime place in qualitative in the development of qualitative work. Yes, absolutely. And Boys in White is uh, definitely a classic. You know, and interestingly, uh, a woman wrote a book called Walking Out on the Boys, which (laughs) was an autoethnographic account of her time as a a woman in surgery and how she left the field uh, due to sort of the patriarchal structure of, of medicine. So I think we need to redo Boys in White. It was also written at a time when mm-hmm. women weren't really allowed into medical school, uh, hence the title. But since then, there's been like so many, I think, profoundly um, influential and uh, great pieces of work using ethnographic methods. And they really, by the way, lend themselves to books. Uh, it's very hard to put a, a sort of a long ethnographic study into a paper. Right, you're you're leaving out so much detail. And I'm just looking at your paper now, mm. the one on plus one, which I'll I'll link in the show notes, which I think is 16 pages. It looks like so. Yeah, and that <laughs> and that was them. You know, we we had to fight with the reviewers because all of our rich descriptive data, yeah. they made us cut out, yeah. and we're like, no, that's you know, that's 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 the um, the most interesting part for us of the work. But they really wanted, you know conclusions and uh, a lot of questions about the methodology a lot of procedural uh, real yeah. procedural focus yeah but you know you say it's you cut out all the rich description looking at the size of the quotations in the in the findings they're pretty hefty you know whereas often you just get a couple of you know non-ethnographic qualitative work it's just a couple of lines to illustrate the kind of analytical claims that the research is making but in your paper and i'm imagining other ethnographic papers they're much larger kind of narratives 
Yes. And they're also because you can imagine, you know, what doesn't get into that paper too much is the ethnographic fieldwork piece. If you're if you were writing to uh, an anthropology journal, the whole way the study is written up would be different. So we wouldn't be in that sort of background methods, findings, discussion. You are you'd literally be sharing uh, the story uh, of what you of what you did and what you found out with the reader. You take them along. It'd be more narrative and less in these sort of clinical journal formats. And that's one of the things, uh, that's one of the tensions for me being a sociologist working in uh, healthcare all, all these years is, is, you know, around having to fight sometimes the sociological part of me um, in order to make the work uh, fit into clinical journals. But I do that on purpose as part of my political commitment to trying to make change. And if I if I wrote the work I did and put it only in non-clinical journals and the people who I feel I would want to read it, the people who are in a position to make change would never see it. And I think a lot of social scientists do that. Um, but I wonder, finishing up, whether there's, if there are any pieces of advice or guidance that you would give listeners that potentially might want to engage in ethnography as a research approach, or perhaps if they're just looking to engage in ethnographic research to use in their clinical practice or their work setting, what would they be? You know, that's a great question. Here's the advice I've taken to giving people, students, the most often these days, which is read. So rather than read methodology papers, uh, to begin with, if you're interested in ethnography, read some of the ethnographic uh, studies that have been done in whatever area it is that interests you the most. And I think people don't do that enough. And uh, so you need to get a feeling for, do these types of findings speak to me? Do they resonate with me? Is this something I find useful? And uh, I think that's the best way to sort of choose what type of qualitative approach you might use. And then you can go into sort of uh, understanding the methodological pieces better and the methods pieces. Uh, but I wouldn't start with the methods. I, I would recommend, you know, you read, like Forgive and Remember is like a, such a brilliant classic. There, there are so many that I'm not mentioning. Um, uh, there was a beautiful, um, I would call it ethnographic work. It wasn't done by an ethnographer called The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. And it was uh, an incredibly moving and profound account of the story of an immigrant family who had a very ill child and their encounter with the North American, I mean, American uh, medical system. And it's an extraordinary piece of work. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll try, and, I'll try and dig that out and link it in the show notes. Yeah, because it is a really great piece of work, but there are so many. Fiona, thank you so much. Thank you, Oliver. It's been a pleasure. And uh, really, I love, by the way, why are you doing this series? I wanted to ask you that because I love this series. What a great idea. I'm doing it because when I was doing my PhD and transitioning from a largely quantitative background to a qualitative background, I, mean, I did my PhD, you know, 10 years ago where podcasting wasn't really a thing, but there, and there still isn't much in the way of qualitative podcasts. Yeah, I occasionally go I on to, you know, Apple Podcasts and you know, type in quality research or grounded theory, almost nothing comes up. It's just, it's just seemed to me like a really good idea to get, to try and lay out the, not all the different approaches, but just some of the, the major ones. And for me to have a bit of a journey myself. Well, I love it. And I'm going to use the series with my students. I mean, what a great teaching tool, right? For people to hear these different perspectives. Thank you so much. Thank you, Oliver. 
you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.